So as I said, Nancy and I just got back from a seven-day cruise. Had a great time, Southern Caribbean. And uh, while you guys were having snow, we were 87 degrees laughing in the water. And uh, very relaxing. The cruise was wonderful, uh, except for the Nancy thing. Some of you husbands, ooh, I'm already getting the glares. Look at that. Some of you husbands know what I mean when I say the Nancy thing. Nancy has this habit. Uh, I told her today, this morning, I said, I am going to use you today, and I'm going to embellish the story a little bit, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> so she gets to find out. She has this habit that makes me want to tie her up and lock her in the stateroom on the cruise ship. Here's what it looks like. We're off the island of Barbados on a catamaran, some other people, and so we've had lunch, and the water is crystal clear. You can see 100 yards under the water, 87 degrees. It's fantastic. Just spectacular. And we're in the water just relaxing. We've got somebody from Great Britain, somebody from Germany, somebody from Canada. We're just all sitting there relaxing in the water. And Nancy says, my husband's a pastor, and he has his doctorate in the Bible. And Nancy just quietly floats out of the group. (laughs) If you're looking for icebreakers for your parties, come see me. It's guaranteed to work. Shuts everything down. Instantly. Silence. Everybody's trying to figure out what to do. How she manages to get a thousand pound elephant and a life preserver in the water in the middle of us, I don't know. But she did. And so, and, and then to top it off, she's got that twinkle in her eye that says, you know what to do. And so, sure enough, some, somebody's got to think of something to say because it's awkward silence, right? And so, one of the ladies says, well, I believe in God. Great. So do I. (laughs) I'm very comfortable with uncomfortable pauses. (laughs) Yeah, I believe in God. Great. Well, I mean, you know, he's a higher power. I said, how'd you know he's a he? Uh, uh, And so the other people, of course, they, they now sense that there's a shark in the water. So they want to protect themselves as fast as they can. Well, I was raised Catholic. Well, I was raised Presbyterian. Oh, great. So you guys can help her understand why her higher power is a he. Uh, uh, And we have a great conversation from there. It just takes off. And we start talking about things. One of the things I love about Nancy, and by the way, she does this at dinner table on the cruise. She does it when we're out on a boat. It doesn't matter where we are. I think I'm going to make a new rule next vacation. She handles her own apologetics. (laughs) So one of the great things about Nancy is that she is absolutely convinced that we are not here by accident. That we are here for a reason and a purpose. And every time we're with people, there's a purpose. She doesn't mind throwing me to the sharks. And I honestly don't mind either. It's kind of fun because <clears throat> uh, people don't know what to do. And, and before you know it, you're into a very engaging conversation with people. People really don't mind talking about faith. What they don't like is being told what to do. That's what they don't like. But they don't mind an engaging conversation. And so the conversation takes off from there, and we have a great time. We are in a series called Trouble Brewing. 
after the far side, for some of you that go back that far, where we have, we're looking at several passages where it appears that one thing is happening and then unexpectedly another theme or story arises in the middle of it. And it's usually captured by the word meanwhile. Okay? This is happening meanwhile something else surfaces. In these stories, we're learning that God is always at work below the surface uh, brewing a solution, trouble brewing. And it's not what you expect. Really what he's doing is he's at work under the surface bringing the kingdom out into our lives. That's what he's doing in an unexpected way. That's what happened when we were sitting in the water. The last thing those people expected was for Nancy to say, my husband's a pastor and he has a doctorate in the Bible. If you had if you'd given them five hours to write down everything that's going to happen, that would not be on the list. And so something surfaces that they weren't expecting and they began to have a conversation that they did not know they were going to have. And it's all because of Nancy. So we're looking at those stories in Scripture. Today we're going to look in John chapter 4 at Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's actually the disciples and the Samaritan woman. They're the ones that are being contrasted. Here. And many of you know the story, um, but we're going to read it. I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along. And there may be some things that pop up that you hadn't thought of before. So let's start with an introduction. The first six verses kind of give us the historical context. <clears throat> John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. You see, Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So that's the historical background. In John chapter 3, the last chapter, Jesus had just had a conversation with Nicodemus. A very important conversation. You see, Nicodemus was one of the most respected, esteemed leaders and teachers in Israel's history, especially during this time period. Well-recognized, well-respected. So when he's talking to Nicodemus, he has a discussion with him about what it means to gain entrance into the kingdom of God because their whole perspective was, uh, uh, was not what God intended for the kingdom. They thought that the Messiah would come and break the Roman rule and lead them again into the glory days of David. And so Jesus begins to introduce the concept of the spiritual kingdom. And that entrance into the kingdom requires the concept of being born again. And it's in John chapter 3 that we get that imagery that we've heard in Christian circles. Sometimes it's used mockingly. Sometimes it's used seriously. But as a theologian, being born again, being born, you're born physically, but then being reborn of the spirit is an essential part of, Uh, It's the essential component of entering into the kingdom. He has this conversation with Nicodemus, a very high-level theologian and teacher. This is a very new concept uh, at this point in time in Israel's history. So now he goes to Galilee for the next part of his mission. Yes, he's on a mission. On the way, he goes through Samaria. So John explains that he had to go through Samaria. This explanation shows us that it was a divine necessity because the Jews typically did not go through Samaria unless they had to, and they literally did not enjoy being with the Samaritans. Um, The question is, why? Why did he have to do it? He had options. So when John uses that phrase, it was necessary for him to do this, that tells us something. 
that this is a divine necessity, it's a divine appointment. That's what Nancy saw was happening at various places on our cruise, that God put us together with a unique group of people for a reason. Let's have fun with it. And so Jesus does the same. Now, Jacob's well was a known site. It goes back to Genesis 48, where Jacob gave this gift of this well to his son Joseph. She, being a Samaritan, would have known the story because the Samaritans only, only read the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch. They didn't read the prophets. They didn't read the wisdom literature. They didn't read any of the historical literature. They only read the first five books. And this is in Genesis, one of the first five. So it was known for its good water, its fresh water. Uh, it was a blessing from Jacob. And so they revered this site. This site was very important to them. And we, as the book tells us, John tells us about noon. So it's very hot and Jesus is exhausted, literally exhausted. And he sits down. That setting becomes very important to the story. Then along comes a woman, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? That's the NIV. Literally, it's an imperative. Many of your translations say, Jesus said, Give me a drink. Just give me a drink. So, um, and the reason, verse 8, is because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So he's alone with this Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So um, we, we learn several things really quickly just in this little part of it. The fact that she is alone gives us a clue as to what's about to come. Because typically women didn't go to wells by themselves. It wasn't safe. They went in groups. And so we're about to find out why she's all alone and why she's by herself. The woman's response to Jesus reveals how unusual his statement was and how bold it was. You see, uh, only here in John is Jesus called a Jew. And that, since it's coming from a Samaritan woman, you have to add a little bit of mockery, a little bit of derision to it, just a hint. Her insulting tone is explained by the narrator. Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans. And that's what he says in verse uh, 9. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she's looking at Jesus. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. It's not what we do. So uh, Jesus doesn't answer her question, but he begins to guide her to himself. She's now on a journey. She's now on a journey, and she doesn't even know it. So when that woman sitting in the water said, uh, I believe in God, good, so do I. Uh, I mean, he's a higher power. Oh, how'd you know it was he? All of a sudden, she just took a step on a journey. No no condescension there. No, no mocking. It was simply an observation with a question. How'd you know that? And then pretty soon I can bring the others into the conversation as well. And they're on a journey. They don't even know they're on a journey. And this is what we're going to see. So he doesn't answer the question. He, he begins to put her on a journey. Jesus answered her, verse 10, uh, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one that gave us this well. He drank from it himself. It was a gift. His sons, his livestock, they did as well. Are you greater than him? It's pretty good water. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's on a journey. He's leading her down this path. So he says to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. With this statement, he changes the entire direction of the conversation. The discussion of the water fades into the background. Now we learn something about Jesus. And we have an example here. He demonstrates a wonderful ability, and this is consistent throughout all the Gospels, to move deeper into the lives of sinners without producing shame. He moves into their life without producing shame. Listen to what he says. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, you are correct when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. He just exposed her. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So he's demonstrated ability. It's a wonderful ability, which we should all practice, by the way, of moving into the lives of people without creating shame. He never does that. The point of highlighting her sinfulness is not to confront her or to shame her, but to reveal his ability to know the truth about her and still love her. It's one of the basic needs that we all have and fear. If you only knew the truth about me, would you still love me? And he just revealed her most intimate truth and said, I still love you. I still love you. Just what he did with the woman at the well. I mean, the, the woman caught in adultery in John 8. It's what he does with Zacchaeus. It's what he does with the woman he calls of many sins who washes his feet with her hair. He has the ability to help them see the truth. I know the worst about you, and I still love you. This produces the first sign of openness in her. You see, in verse 19, she called him a Jew. Now she calls him a sir. And then she says, I can see that you're a prophet. So she's moved to mocking to a little bit of inquisitiveness, gives him a term of respect, sir. Now she says, I can see that you're a prophet. In other words, he has, he has dignity and authority. So she's opening herself up slowly to him. Jesus chooses a Samaritan woman to reveal the secret of true spiritual worship in the kingdom. This is a far different place than he was with Nicodemus. With Nicodemus in the last chapter, he's at the very highest on the social structure, the most well-educated theologian in Israel. It says, entrance into the kingdom requires that you be born again, born of the Spirit. The next chapter, he moves to the lowest person on the social structure, a woman. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. That's even worse than a Jewish woman. Not only a Samaritan woman, but a promiscuous one. And she's the one he chooses to reveal the truth about 
true spiritual worship. Here's what he says. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come. It's now here. The kingdom has arrived. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah also called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So the first thing Jesus says, contrary to the Samaritans, Jesus is not a mountain or a place or a sanctuary. True worship is about relationship. We would do well to remember that. It's not what happens here on Sunday morning. That's a little tiny piece of it. It's what happens the rest of the week. It's about relationship. That's the first thing he says. Worship in the kingdom involves a personal, engaging relationship with the true God revealed in his son Jesus. That's what worship is. This leads her even closer. So now she's moved from Jew, derogatory term, sir, a term of respect, prophet, a term of dignity and authority to Messiah. Could this be the one? Could this be the one? See how he's taken this conversation and led her right down. She had no inkling that morning when she got up. She was not only about to meet the Messiah himself, but she was about to learn the truth. Can you imagine if he'd never given her this information? We wouldn't have it today. This is where it's revealed what true spiritual worship is. He led her on a journey. So what happened sitting in the water that day. We started on a journey together. Jesus' response is a claim to deity. The NIV says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Yeah, some of your translations say it this way, I am. This is the first place in John where he uses I am, the name of God, out of Exodus 3. So you would have been familiar with that. Exodus 3.14. God's name is Yahweh, I am. This is the first place it occurs in John. So when she says, uh, I hear that the Messiah is coming, and Jesus said, I am. He just claimed to be God. I am. Verse 27. Meanwhile, so pause the story. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? When they returned, they were astonished. They were shocked that he's talking with a woman. Why? Well, Let's jump back into the culture just for a brief period and let's look at what the Jewish leaders taught in and around the time of Jesus. You see, the Jewish sages had much to say about the relationship between men and women during this time and a little bit later too. Men were to avoid unnecessary conversation with women. These are statements in writing. Among six activities that are unbecoming of a scholar is conversing with a woman. Shouldn't do it. A wife could be divorced without her marriage settlement. That's the money to sustain her. She could be divorced without that if she spoke with a man in the street. A man should even avoid speaking with one's sister or wife in public as it might be misinterpreted by a person unknown to them. 
Similarly, Greek culture viewed it as shameful for a wife to be seen talking with a young man. Those are the cultural values and expectations of this time period. Never alone with a woman. And Jesus just violated every one of them. Jesus broke with traditional cultural expectations and values to fulfill the mission of God to reach out to this lowly Samaritan woman. First of all, he's alone with her. She is alone, signifying her rejection from her own people. She was more important to Jesus than what anybody else thought. It didn't bother him what other people thought. He was willing to be shamed. He was willing to become unclean. He was willing to do all these things for the sake of the mission. The mission was paramount. The mission was paramount to Jesus. And here's a classic example of it. Her response reveals this steady movement to Christ. So here's what she says. Uh, Verse 28. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So the first thing she does when she goes back to the town, now remember, she's, she's a very low-class person. And so the question that's being asked here is actually, you know, we, we do the same in English. In Greek, they can, ex- they can phrase a question so you can expect a positive or negative answer. This one expects a negative answer. This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? I think she's being deferential because she's the lowest person in the social structure in this village. She's by herself. If she came back and said, I found the Messiah, they'd laugh at her. So she grants to them dignity of choice by saying, this isn't the Messiah, is it? So now look where she's come. Jew, a derogatory term. Sir, term of respect. Prophet, a term of office and position. Messiah, a future hope to telling others. She moved beyond knowledge. She moved into relationship. She now believes. That's the cycle of evangelism. Then, verse 31, meanwhile, we have another twist. Meanwhile, the disciples said to each other, um, No, meanwhile, his disciples, verse 31, urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes right now and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps it draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He had just said in verse 30, they were all coming out of the town. He says, look around you and see the harvest. It's ready. You see, the disciples, like the woman, are stuck in their own culture with this expectation and values. First of all, they're astonished he's speaking with a woman. Second of all, they're concerned about food. Jesus is leading them beyond the categories of ordinary food, just like he led her beyond the categories of ordinary water. What nourishes Jesus is fulfilling the mission of God. Here it is. 
you should underline that verse because that is the key verse in Christian theology. What nourishes us, Jesus says, is obedience. What's the great commandment? Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've taught you. There it is. Nourishment doesn't come because you're here. That's not it at all. Nourishment comes because you start to engage in the lives of your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ. And you begin to have a conversation with them. That's when true nourishment begins to occur. And that's what Jesus is arguing. What nourishes Jesus is fulfilling the mission of his Father. And he said, and we have that same mission. We now understand why it was necessary for Jesus to enter into Samaria. So look at the results. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I'm going to read a quote out of a book called The Organic Reformation. Tom Johnston and Mike Perkinson. After his dialogue with the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well, Jesus points out the lack of awareness on the part of his disciples concerning what God was doing right in their midst. Right in their midst. They had gone off to find some lunch for Jesus, and while they were gone, Jesus had this discourse with the woman. Upon their return, they marvel at the fact that Jesus is breaking cultural rules. You see, he's talking to a woman, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman, while they're focused on getting uh, him to eat thus missing the real opportunity right around them. They were so focused on the social, political realities. Think about where we are as a nation, where our distractions are. They are so focused on the social, political realities and the cares of the day that they miss the ripe harvest field field right before them, the Samaritan villagers who are coming out to them. They thought they were just passing through this God-forsaken region of apostate half-breeds. But Jesus sees what the Father is up to. He sees the ripe harvest and then ends up staying two days there. Is this not so much like the church in the West? We're so caught up in culture wars, doctrinal debates, our own church subculture, so wrapped up in the cares of this life that we miss the harvest right around us. Okay, what do we learn? First of all, both the woman and the disciples are locked into their own cultural traditions. The woman struggled to get past her cultural tradition of water coming from a famous well. The disciples struggled to get past their cultural tradition of how women are to be viewed and treated. With Jesus, we have a model of how to move beyond these cultural limitations and blinders into the lives of those who are different than us. That's what we learn. You see, his word, Jesus' words, they bring us illumination so that we can understand the nature of the kingdom. But it's his works, his actions in the lives of people, which brings us illustration or examples of how to live out that faith. It's not real until it's lived out. So he can teach us about the kingdom. 
but it doesn't become real until he exhausts himself to get into Samaria and risk everything, his own shame, his own reputation, to speak to a lowly woman. His compassion and love for the woman motivated him to move beyond the cultural expectations of his day to lead her to the one true God. Another thing we learn is that belief is not the same as faith. Faith requires action. It requires us to move beyond our own cultural expectations, our own comfort levels, if you will. It always involves risk. There was risk that day when Nancy said that. Those people could have turned around, swam the other direction, we'd be on the same boat, and they wouldn't talk to us. There's risk. Sure there is. That's what faith is. Faith is an exercise in risk by definition. If you know the outcome, it's not faith. His compassion and love for the woman motivated him to move beyond the cultural expectations of his own day to lead her to the one true God. Living out and sharing our faith, living out and sharing our faith is the evidence that genuine transformation is in fact occurring in our lives. Her natural response was to go tell her friends about Jesus. Is that your natural response? Do you ever say to your friends, tell me about your faith background? I asked people that this past week. What's your faith background? What did you bring with you that was good from that faith background? What did you learn? What do you know about Jesus? Do you have an opinion based on what the world says? Stereotypes? Do you really know anything about him? People love to have these conversations. So I want to leave you with this question. What cultural blinders are keeping you from moving into your world with the gospel? What cultural blinders? When you see a snowboarder, do you think drugs? It's a cultural blinder. When you see rich with big houses, do you think greed? It's a cultural blinder. When you see a pretty young woman or man, handsome man, do you assume they have it all together? One of the things I've discovered being in this county, having coffee and coffee shops all around the county, is that the people that have it all together, it's not true. Their life is just as messed up as mine is. When you see a poor person, do you assume they're irresponsible? What about racial prejudice? When you see a Hispanic teenager with tattoos around his neck, what do you assume? When you see an African-American teenager with a hat turned sideways, what comes to mind? What racial blinders do you have that keep you from sharing the gospel? Father, thank you for just thank you for Jesus' willingness to go beyond to go beyond the cultural values of the day. Lord, if every way through, the, everywhere you look in the Bible, if we had if they had stuck with the cultural values, expectations, limitations, the gospel would have never penetrated. The very nature of the gospel is to go beyond what we see and experience because we are the ones who bring the kingdom to this world. Thank you for choosing to 
Use us in that way. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.